I'm not a car guy. Uh, that's just something you should know about me. Uh, I know if you came to fall kickoff, you remember that I'm a muscle truck guy, uh, but I don't know that much about vehicles. Like I, I can do the basics, right? I can change the oil, I can check the fluids, I can change out a flat tire, um, but more complex things, right? Like swapping out an engine or fixing a transmission, like above my pay grade. Like I, I don't know how to do that. But I know a guy who does, right? So when the check engine light comes on, right? That orange light of doom, I quickly call my buddy Dan and I say, Dan, I need to bring it in. Uh, tell me when, tell me where, and, uh, and we'll make it happen. And Dan has all the skills, right? He went to tech school, he's a mechanic. He knows what he's doing, right? And he always fixes it. So certain tasks, right? Complex tasks require a certain set of skills. They require an expert, if you will. Salvation is a complex task, right? The, the, the idea that a sinful person can be reconciled to a holy God, that is a complex task. So a very particular kind of person is needed, a very particular kind of God, right? And there's no trade school, there's no tech school where someone can learn to do this, right? You either do it or you don't. And then the good news for the Christian is that the Christian God can actually save people, Isaiah, this sermon series that we're in, is, is focusing the people of God uh, to look up, right? Behold your God. Behold the God who saves, right? And that's what we're going to talk about today. So the message for today, right? The big idea for today is very simple. Only the Holy One of Israel can save people. Only the Holy One of Israel can save people, right? We're going to talk about this in three ways. There's the problem there's the fake fix, and there's the answer, right? So we're covering two chunks, like two chapters of Isaiah, and we'll choose bits and pieces here and there, uh, but we'll focus in on Isaiah 43, 1 to 7, right? Before we get to that, though, let's jump into Isaiah 43, starting in verse 22. This is the word of God. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You have not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. Right? This, this passage opens, right? This is the first idea the problem, right? And this passage opens with the prophet Isaiah bringing a hard word to the people, right? And the prophet Isaiah functioned like all the other prophets did in Old Testament Israel. He would go and he would tell the people, hey, you're being disobedient, come back to the Lord, right? That was the, the job description of a prophet, right? They, they were the bylaw officers of, of Old Testament Israel. You know, they came by and said, these are the things you're doing wrong. You need to fix them or there'll be punishment, Right? So Isaiah preached spicy sermon after spicy sermon to get the people of God to wake up from, from their stupor, from their ignorance, from their idolatry. And Isaiah's ministry was 50 years long. Like this dude preached a long time. And he preached to four different kings, right? Uh, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. He preached to Jewish people. Isaiah even preaches to other nations, right? He a crazy long ministry. And the one consistent thing over the entire 50 years, over all his sermons, was that Isaiah repeated the same message, or basically the same message, over and over 
and over again. Return to the Lord your God. That's what he was saying. Return to Yahweh, Israel, Judah. Return to God. Isaiah 1.3 gives us a representative text, right? The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know, right? They don't know their master. They don't know their God, right? Their problem is that my people do not understand. Isaiah was warning the people because there would be real world consequences for their disobedience. And if you know the Old Testament history, they didn't listen and they faced those real world consequences, right? In 722, the Assyrian empire came and they conquered the, the Northern kingdom of Israel and took away a bunch of captives, brought in a bunch of foreigners. In 586 BC, the kingdom of Babylon took over the kingdom of Judah, took away a bunch of captives back to, to Babylon as exiles. The people of God suffered real world consequences for their disobedience. That's how God works. And Isaiah warned them, but the people weren't listening. And as we get to Isaiah 40, and Isaiah 40 to, to 55, right, this sermon text or the, the sermon unit that we're in, right, there's one quick clarifying note I want to make. In the early parts of Isaiah, Israel and Judah are two distinct things. They're two distinct nations, right? Same ethnic background, but two distinct nations, right? The northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. But by the time we get to Isaiah 40 and beyond, both, both those kingdoms are gone and all that remains, as we're reading in Isaiah 40 and today in Isaiah 43, the, the people who have returned from Babylon, that's now Israel or Judah. So at this point, Israel, Judah, Ephraim, all these terms are used interchangeably to talk about the one people of God. So as you're listening to me, you should be thinking, the one people of God, the children of the Babylonian exiles. That's who Isaiah is writing to. And Isaiah says this, these people continue to disobey. They're just like mommy and daddy. They disobey God just like their parents did and their parents suffered huge real world consequences. And Isaiah says, don't be like them. Please change your behavior. And he writes to them, right? And he, he writes uh, in verses 22 to 24 and outlines kind of, or gives us a snapshot of the way that Israel disobeys. Right? So the first one, Verse 22, they failed to call upon the Lord, right? This certainly refers to prayer, right? Call upon the Lord is a biblical phrase that, that refers to, to prayer, right? People lifting up their voice, lifting up their thoughts and saying, God, will you help me? God, will you act in our world? God, we need you. And it, Isaiah is saying, these people, they fail to pray. They're not calling upon the Lord. But it's, it's more calling upon the Lord is, is more than just prayer broadly, kind of more narrow. It refers specifically to repentance. When people call upon the Lord, they say, God, I've messed up. God, I've not obeyed. God, can you forgive me? And Isaiah is saying the people of Israel are not asking for forgiveness. And the reason they're not asking for forgiveness is because they don't want to change, right? And, and it gets worse, right? Verse 23, they fail to sacrifice, right? They fail to give burnt offerings. And Isaiah is not saying that they actually failed to sacrifice. They had a temple again, right? They would still give sacrifices. He's going after their posture, right? They, they are doing the right thing, but with the wrong attitude, right? God had provided 
with the Old Testament sacrificial system so that the people of God could be forgiven of their sins. That's, that's how, what it did. So you would have a sinful person who did something wrong, right? They broke God's law. And that sinful person would go and they would bring a bull or a ram or a goat or a sheep and they would bring it before the Lord, before the, the temple, and they would kill it. And the death of the animal signified the penalty the sinner deserved, right? And because that animal died, the debt was paid, right? That this was the, the principle of exchange, right? Or, or of substitution. And we, I have a lot more to say about that, but we'll get to that in, in a few minutes. But we see this principle in action in the Old Testament sacrificial system. And Israel was really good at giving sacrifices, right? They killed the animal or they sinned. They killed the animal, received forgiveness. Isaiah isn't saying they don't know how to kill animals, Isaiah is saying, you keep killing animals, you keep getting forgiven, and you're not changing. You're doing the right things, but with the wrong attitude. This, this idea is very normal, right? It's, it's a part of our lives as well. If you have kids, you know very well that it's possible for someone to do the right thing with the wrong attitude, right? You have a little kid and you tell them, hey, go help your brother or go help your sister, clean up the toys, right? Clean up the mess that you made. Right? And the kid stomps off and screaming and throwing toys and breaking stuff. And, you know, they're cleaning up. They're doing the right thing. They're putting away the toys. But their attitude is all wrong. Right? We, we see this principle in action. Right? And Israel was this kind of petulant child. They were doing the sacrifices. And they were saying, see, God, forgive me. I feel sorry that I sinned. And then did not change over and over and over again. And Isaiah looks at them and says, you're doing something terrible. God is not mocked when you do this. And worse than their abuse of God's mercy and grace, they were not thankful, right? That's the harshest line. They, they failed to be thankful. Their most visible sin was that they were not thankful to the God who had rescued them, right? God had rescued them. The reason they were even in the land, the reason they could even give sacrifices was because God brought them back from Babylon, right? God didn't need to do that. And then God helped them rebuild the temple and now they have an ability to re receive forgiveness of sins. And they say, cool. They failed to thank God for all he had done for them. And Isaiah looks at that situation and says, are you kidding me? you don't understand how much God has done for you. When you understand how much God has done for you, you always give thanks, right? Psalm 116 outlines this for us, right? It gives us a positive example of the appropriate response to the work of God in your life. So Psalm 116, starting in verse 16. Oh Lord, I am your servant. I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. God, you broke the chains that kept me trapped, right? I'm free of sin. God, you broke them. How should I respond? Verse 17, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving and call on the name of the Lord. Isaiah is talking to the people of Israel that they're not being thankful. They should do what the psalmist says. Thankfulness is the appropriate response to God's work. And Israel was thankless. And not only were they abusing grace and thankless, they continued in their disobedience. God calls them out, right? There's, there's a word play in verse 23 and verse 24, right? God did not burden them with sacrifice in verse 23. Verse 24 says they did burden God with their sins. It's not just that they're abusing grace. It's not just that they're not thankful. 
they continue over and over and over to sin. And we could look at Israel and say, ah, you dummies, you messed up. I can't believe you're like that. But that attitude of persistent sin, right, of I do what I want, I go my own way, it's not unique to Israel. We see that in our churches too, right? Christian people struggle with that as much as anyone. And actually, if we're being honest, it's not just Israel and Christian people. Uh, it's everyone. Like the universal human condition is that people do, the, do what they want. They go their own way. To use the language of the passage, they burden God with their sins, right? And, and that's the problem. Isaiah is presenting us with the problem. And the problem for everyone is that we burden God with our sins. And yet, it is never too late to respond. That's the good news, right? And Isaiah is calling these people out because it is never too late to do the right thing. God's response to sinful people, to people who abuse his grace, to people who are thankless, to people who do what they want, is redemption, is forgiveness, is mercy. If any person calls out to God, God forgives them, right? So today, today could be the day that you call out to Jesus. If you're hearing this and you're a Christian who is stuck in sin, you, like when you hear Israel abusing grace, failing to thank God, doing what they want, you're like, uh-huh, that's me. I got problems, man. Today could be the day where you repent, you follow God. If you are a not yet Christian, right, someone who doesn't quite believe, but you're not sure about this idea of sin, you're not really sure this, this message is for you, today could be the day where you buy in, where you say, you know what, this makes sense. The world is messed up because everyone does what they want. I'm going to follow God. Today could be the day you follow God. Or maybe you're like a total skeptic. You're, you're like, I'm not even sure how I got here, man. I, I must have clicked the wrong link. Well, maybe today's not your day, but tomorrow could be. The day will come when as you're doing your own thing, you will face terrible consequences. And in that moment, you can think back to this sermon. Think back to this moment and say, today I could follow God. Romans 10, 17 tells us that everyone who calls upon the Lord will be saved. All you have to do is say, God, help me. Today could be the day. So the problem, obviously, is that people burden God with their sin. And there's a fake fix, right? People, people's response to burdening God, right, is, you know what? I just need, I need, I need some help. And they turn towards idols, right? Isaiah 49 we're going to read two chunks, or sorry, 44, starting in verse 9. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. Then we skip ahead to verse 16. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the, over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to worship it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me. You are my god. They know not, nor do, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot discern. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say half of it, it is burned in the fire. I also baked 
on its coals, or also bake bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? The idea of idolatry is everywhere in the Bible. And the reason for this is because there are a lot of options out there. God, like Yahweh, the, the Holy One of Israel, is not the only option on the market, right? There's, there's lots of stuff out there. The people of God knew that, and, and we know that today, right? The, the question isn't, are there options? The question is, do they work? Can they save? My, my wife likes using pop sockets, right? If you don't know what a pop socket is, it's a, a little device that you hold on your fingers and it helps you hold your phone. So you can hold your phone with one hand, right? Not the two-hand program, but the one-hand program. Uh, and pop sockets are designed to hold your phone so that it doesn't fall and break and you get all mad. Or worse, if you've ever done, you know, kind of laying there and it's over your head and you drop it on your nose and you get way more mad, the pop socket protects you from that. My wife had a pop socket, had it for two years, worked great, finally broke. She wanted a new one. We have Amazon Prime, so she goes onto Amazon and types in pop socket. Like, honestly, it was like a hundred different options were available. And she's looking, she's like, man, some of these aren't even the right language. I, like, I don't think they're pop sockets at all. And as we're looking through them, we realized uh, there was a lot of counterfeits. Like there was a lot of options out there, right? The question wasn't, are there options out there? The question is, which one is the pop socket? Because the pop socket works. It, last, it lasted two years. I know it works. That's the one I want, right? And this principle is true in, in regards to religion. There's a whole bunch of options out there. And Israel faced all kinds of options. The, the Canaanites had Baal. The Philistines had Dagon. The Moabites had Chemosh. And Israel's looking and saying, well, we have Yahweh, but should we add some of them? Should we follow them instead of Yahweh? Israel faced a difficult decision. But actually, the decision isn't difficult at all. God's law is very clear. Exodus 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. So Israel needed to turn from these idols, but they struggled. right? And that's why Isaiah 44 goes after idols. This is one of the harshest, firmest, fiercest texts against idols in the Bible. It's polemical, right? It's an attack on the idea of idols, and it's very direct, right? Uh, verse 9, they're witnesses, right? The followers of these idols neither see nor know, right? If you follow a block of wood, you become a blockhead, right? That's the point. Uh, verses 15 and 16, half your God you worship, half the God you burn over the fire, Right? It's, it's absurd. It does not make sense, right? And that's what Isaiah is trying to emphasize. The absurdity of the situation. That someone would fall down before a block of wood when they burned the other half. You don't burn half a god. Right? That, that doesn't, you don't eat the ashes of a god. You don't fall down before a block of wood thinking it will save you. So Isaiah writes to the people of God and says, don't be silly. Turn away from those idols. They don't work. They cannot save only the Holy One of Israel can save. And he writes very, very directly. There's a danger for us, right, in, in looking at that and saying, well, we're not them, right? They, you know, they're fourth century people. It's thousands of years to today. We don't struggle with the same things. But I think idolatry simply changes in how it looks. But the principle is the same. And we struggle just as much, right? So idolatry, I wanted to find this because it's critical for us. 
anywhere we go for pleasure or purpose apart from God. That's idolatry. Simply put, anywhere we go for pleasure or purpose apart from God. And your response obviously is, Freddie, that's a very broad term. And I say, yes and amen. It is broad because idolatry is a very real problem. I think people struggle all over the place. And I think even good things can become idols, especially good things can become idols, right? So things like money, sex, power, comfort, safety, control, these are good things. There's an appropriate way to have all of them, but they're idols. They can become idols for any one of us, right? So idols, right, they give us pleasure or purpose, right? Because of the pleasure or purpose, right? In the pursuit of this idol, we change our actions or behaviors, right? That's how idolatry looks looks in our lives, right? So uh, I want to give us some symptom checks, if you will. So like, how can I know that I'm struggling with idolatry with this good thing? So there's kind of two things that, two questions you can ask. Uh, Do I prioritize a thing or an experience over people? And secondly, uh, am I pursuing a legitimate need with illegitimate means? So both of those. So let, let me kind of illustrate what it looks like. So you know, uh, it's, there's nothing wrong with owning a nice car, right? Uh, but if, if a dude owns a, you know, a brand new truck, right, and you hop in and, you know, you're going out to, to spend some time together, you haven't seen him in a long time, and the guy, like, before you're even in the car, wash your shoes, no food, no drink, you're like, whoa, what? Like, that person is prioritizing their vehicle, no matter how expensive it was, their vehicle, a thing, over the relationship, right? They're putting restrictions on you because the vehicle matters so much, Right? Or, you know, the, the girl who won't go out until she gets her outfit perfect, right? You know, you're waiting and she makes you wait an hour uh, because she's, she's not quite ready yet, right? That girl is prioritizing beauty over the relationship, right? Inconveniencing other people in the pursuit of, of, a, of a thing, of a good thing. Beauty is a good thing. But you can start to see that, wait a minute, this is, this is shaping your actions. It's shaping your beliefs. You're getting purpose. You're getting pleasure from this thing. I, it could be an idol, the, the other one, right? Pursuing a legitimate need with illegitimate means, right? Everyone needs to feel valued and accepted, right? Uh, but to do that, if I were to slander my coworker to other coworkers over and over and over again, and they laugh and they love me, but the other person just feels cut down over and over and over again, that would be wrong. That would be sinful. And in that, you could see, Freddie, you're pursuing the acceptance of your peers uh, in, a, in a manner that makes me think that's an idol. That's a legitimate need, with illegitimate means towards that need, right? So these two questions, right? These two symptom checkers help us see the the presence of idols in our lives, right? And there's three really big ones, right? As we think of Western culture, there's three really big ones, money, sex, and power. And I wanna focus in on one of them. I could talk on any of them, but I'm gonna focus in on one, sex. Sex is an idol in our culture. And there's two big ways that we see people's actions and beliefs changed in the pursuit of this God who gives them pleasure or purpose. Idols, their sex becomes an idol when people pursue sex outside of marriage, right? People in our world cannot imagine a dating relationship that does not include a physical component, right? That doesn't even compute, right? Like we live in a world where Tinder exists, right? You don't even need the relationship. You can just have the physical. So there are P- our, our world suffers underneath the influence of the idol of sex, and we see it 
in, this, in sex outside of marriage. And there is a legitimate need in, as people fall into this trap, right? The legitimate need is that everyone needs relationship, everyone needs intimacy, everyone needs connection, right? And, and those are good things, right? The illegitimate means is premarital sex. People think, well, you know, if I do this, I feel close, I feel connected, but they're missing, they're missing the mark, right? The Bible defines sex as a gift to be enjoyed from God for a man and a woman who have joined together in marriage, monogamous heterosexual marriage. That's where sex is supposed to be enjoyed. So when someone in the pursuit of the pleasure of sex is willing to engage in premarital sex or engage in an illicit affair, they have shown that they are under the influence of the idol of sex. This is a, a huge problem in our culture, but there's one that's even bigger, pornography. Pornography is a clear sign of someone being trapped by the idol of sex. In the pursuit of the pleasure that sex promises, they're willing to go online and pursue all kinds of things. Fight the New Drug uh, shows these statistics. Studies have shown that most young people are exposed to porn by age 13. And according to a nationally representative survey of U.S. teens, 84.4% of 14 to 18 year old males and 57% of 14 to 18 year old females have viewed pornography. I was at a, at a pastoral eth ethics seminar and the speaker shared 85% of men have struggled or do struggle with pornography. 33% of women, that's a lot of people. That is in the church and outside the church. Pornography has a powerful grip on our, on our culture the idol of sex has a powerful grip on our culture. And again, there, there is a legitimate need. People need relationship. People need intimacy. But pursuing it through a screen misses the mark, right? God is designed for sex, is a relationship between a man and a woman. And as that man and that woman merge their lives together and see each other at their best, at their worst, at their highest, at their lowest, as they merge their lives together, they're able to enjoy deeper and deeper intimacy. And sex is just one expression of that intimacy. Sex is a gift from God to be enjoyed within heterosexual monogamous marriage, but a terrible idol. Sex is a terrible idol. It does not give purpose, right? There is no joy in the building of a relationship together. It does not even give pleasure because it's so temporary. A moment and it's gone. People have to go back over and over and over again to their affair, to premarital sex, to pornography because the law of diminishing returns. It's never quite enough and they always have to go back. Another relationship, another night, another click, and they're stuck following the idol of sex. The problem of all people is that they burden God with their sins. And people turn, trying to find a solution, trying to find something to give them purpose or pleasure. And too often they settle on idols that lead to destruction. But there is an answer. And Isaiah 43, 1 to 7 uh, is what gives us th this answer. It reads as follows. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored. And I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons and daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, who I formed and made. Isaiah 43 helps us understand God's salvation. So there's a few preliminaries, right? So first, obviously, we have to acknowledge God created, right? Like that's the very first line in, in verse one, right? And we know that God created the heavens and the earth, right? In Genesis 1.1, God created people, male and female, in Genesis 1.27. Uh, but specifically, Isaiah is saying, God created a people of God. Like he chose you and brought you into relationship with him. That is described in Deuteronomy 7, verse six. Uh, this is what it says. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Right? God chose them, right? This is kind of the, the marriage vow between Israel and, and the people and God himself, right? In, in marriage vows, people say, you know, I, I'm making a commitment to you, right? I choose you. Here's what I'm committing to. And God has done that, right? God says, I chose you. And I'm committing to keep you, to protect you, to, to rescue you, to save you. You have to commit to obey me, right? And, and that's the kind of relationship God is with them. And Isaiah gives examples of, of the way God has delivered his people, right? In the Exodus, right? God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, right? And he, he actually walked them across the Red Sea on dry land, defeated the armies of Pharaoh by swallowing them up in the sea. God says, or Isaiah says, Look at what God has done. God saves his people. Another line that comes from the, from the passage, when you walk through the flames, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are three names that maybe you're familiar with. We find their story in Daniel 3. And they're Israelite people who were, or Jewish people in the captivity of, of Babylon who refused to bow to an idol. And they were thrown into a fiery furnace. Uh, three people went in, four people came out. God showed up. God delivered his people and, and Isaiah is saying, see, this is what God does. He rescues his people, right? And, and we could look at that and say, okay, well, he rescues his faithful people, right? You know, the people in slavery who call out to God, like save us, right? The three amigos in Babylon who say, we're not going to worship your idols. God saves faithful people. What about rebels? What about people like us? Does God save people like us, right? And the answer to that is, of course, that is who God is. God saves rebellious people. And verses three to seven describe how that works, right? This is a passage that teaches us how salvation works, right? The, I talked about it before, right? The principle of exchange, right? God redeems his people. He pays off their debt through, through exchange, right? So we're told that Egypt and Cush are given in exchange for you. This is a historical event. Isaiah is, is looking forward and is saying, you know how, you know, the only reason you came back from Babylon is because the Persians conquered them? Well, the Persians conquered them and then went and conquered the Egyptians and the Cushites, and they're all distracted. So they're like, hey, who are these Egyptians or who are these Israelite slaves? Let's get them out of here. Send them home. We don't care if they're here. God exchanged these people, Egypt, Cush, for the people 
of Israel, the principle of exchange is not hard to understand, right? You, you transfer in a less, or a less valuable item for a more valuable item, right? So you have a baby, baby is holding a key fob, key fobs are crazy expensive, it's like 400 bucks, so you're like, I, I don't want it damaged. You take the key fob and you give them the Sophie, right? The, the chewy giraffe, right? It, that is like 10 bucks, 15 bucks. Or you have a dog and the dog is chewing your blunt stones, right? Those are expensive. You take the blunt stones, you give them a chew toy, right? Chew toys are cheap. We exchange a less valuable thing to rescue the more valuable thing. The, the principle makes sense. It's easy to understand. There's a problem though. God is talking about exchanging people, less valuable people, for more valuable people. And non-Christians hear that and they think, oh, I got you. Like, that God is wicked. That God is immoral. The idea that God would kill one to save another, terrible. That God is a moral monster. And the picture they have in their mind is, is a God kind of like Thanos, right? So if you, if you watch the, the Marvel movies, Thanos is the ultimate bad guy. He's this super powerful villain whose sole purpose in life is to kill half the universe. And he's going to do it randomly. He snaps his fingers, half the universe dies, and, and Thanos believes that the half who lives has a lot more resources, a lot more time, and uh, you know, they will flourish, right? But the idea, he kills half of people instantly. And he's a bad guy, that's immoral. You can't just kill people to save others. How is that better? Why does one person deserve to die and one person deserve to live? It doesn't make sense to us. But that's because we misunderstand how God works, right? This principle works if the, the person who is substituted, the person who is exchanged, volunteers. Right? The person pulls a Katniss Everdeen and says, I volunteer as tribute. Then it works. And this, my friends, is the Christian message. God has made a way. Jesus Christ himself is the substitute. He takes the place of sinners and God can forgive sinners of their sin debt. Matthew 20, 28 explicitly teaches this. Even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ came to do this. The gospel, the good news is that there is a way for the, the fundamental human problem, right? The, the burden of sin that every person carries and throws on God, there's a way to fix that. That Jesus Christ takes your place. He's better than a sheep. He's better than a, a goat. He's better than a bull. And he dies paying the penalty that sin deserves. Your guilt is gone. Your debt is paid. But Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He's noble. He's perfect. So he resurrects the new life. And not only do you no longer have a debt, you now have an inheritance of eternal life. That's the Christian message that eternal life is available by putting your faith in Jesus. This story is good, right? But it gets better because this, this message is available to all kinds of people, to the worst kind of people. You see, Isaiah 43 teaches us that God pursues people from all over the place. The wayward and the wandering, the willfully wicked, God pursues all kinds of people, right? Like the, the spiritual person who doesn't really know what they're searching for, but they're searching. Right? The, the ex-evangelical who left but is maybe interested in coming back. The person who's struggling, stuck in sin. To all of them, God says, man, if you come to me, I'll exchange Jesus for your sin. You can be saved. 
That's the answer. The answer is that God saves sinners. The Holy One of Israel is the only one who can save people. And when he does, when he does, this is what he says to them. You are precious in my eyes. I love you. That's from Isaiah 43, verse 3. God goes to the ends of the earth to save his children, to save any person who calls out to him. This is a salvation text. Isaiah 43 teaches us about salvation, but even deeper, at a deeper level, it shows us the heart of God. It shows us a God who loves broken people. A God who calls people by name in verse two. A God who tells us, I love you in verse three. I love you, an individual person, you. A God who says to the ends of the earth, do not withhold my children. I'm not leaving a single one behind. This is the heart of God towards the sinner. This is incredible. This is a God worth knowing. God is the kind of God who will never give up on his kids. On the good days, on the bad days, on the busy days, on the tired days, God will never give up on his kids. And this is good news for us. Isaiah will, will make this most clear in Isaiah 49, 15 to 16, where he says this, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands your walls are continually before me. You're God's kid, and he loves you. But, but more than that, like he has engraved your name on his hands. He carries your picture in his wallet. Your face is the background on his phone or on his tablet. God is that fond of his people. Even when they're in the midst, in the midst of the worst sins, God is that fond of his people, refuses to abandon them. This is the heart of God for us. He sent his son to die so you could live. So how should you live? I think the most reasonable response to that is that Christians need to turn from idols. We struggle as much as anyone does with all of them, money, sex, power, comfort, safety. We struggle with all of them. And the Christian needs to take a hard look at their life and say, God, you have done so much for me and you show that you would be faithful no matter what happens in my life. I don't need to put my, my hopes, I don't need to pursue purpose or pleasure through these other things. You've got me. You'll take care of everything. And the reality for us is I think we don't turn from idols because we forget how much God loves us. We think he's holding out. We think, man, God, you know, you don't understand how lonely I am. I just need a significant other. I'll do anything to get them. I'll do anything to keep them. God, you don't know how much I'm struggling with temptation. Just give me this tiny outlet. It's not a big deal. And we look at God and we say, you don't love me as much as, as you say. You're holding back from me. And when you look at Isaiah 43, it is impossible to think that. God could not love us more. God could not have done more for us. He loves you enough to give up his own son for you. So like our problem then is like little kids, we just lack knowledge, right? We think we know best, right? C.S. Lewis in, in a sermon many years ago says it this way. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the, pro of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. 
We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are much too easily pleased. C.S. Lewis's point was that we don't really know how much God loves us. We don't know how good the life that God wants for us truly is. So we ignore his direction. We ignore his, his laws. And we go our own way and we pursue idols for purpose, for pleasure. And the law of diminishing returns kicks in and it's never enough. And we always go back and we always come back empty. So Christian, turn from the idol. We all have one. We all struggle with one. Whatever it is in your life, turn from that idol. Today's the day that you need to be reminded God loves you. God has saved you. God has done so much more for you than you could ever understand. So turn. Right? The answer to our problems, right, to, to the sin debt that we pile up with God, right, the burden of sin that we give to God, to the problem of idols in our lives is that God saves sinners. The Holy One of Israel saves sinners. Salvation is a complex task. God has done more than we could ever imagine or understand for this. He gave up his own son to rescue people like you and me. So God has done that, something no idol could ever do. Money cannot save you. Sex cannot save you. Power cannot save you. Comfort, safety, none of those can save you. Only God can. That's Isaiah's message. That was Isaiah's message thousands of years ago. It's Isaiah's message today. Only the Holy One of Israel can save people. Will you turn to him? Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this day. Uh, thank you for this message, Father. We are reminded that there is only one who can save. Father, I pray for our people. Um, would you help us turn from idols? Father, we all struggle in various ways with various things. Lord, by your spirit, set us free from these burdens. We know you've already forgiven us of our sins, and we know you won't give up on us. So Father, help us walk this Christian life. And for those who are listening and have not yet believed, Father, I pray that they would feel burdened by the love of God, and we'd be drawn to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.